Hi, this is Pastor Andrew here at Oak Ridge Baptist Church in San Antonio, Texas. If you'd like to learn more about us, you can check us out online at www.orbcnet.com. Better yet, come by and visit us at the corner of Wurzbach and Vance Jackson in northwest San Antonio. Welcome, everyone. We are all here together to worship the Lord. Uh, we got our great worship team helping us, singing about joy. We got the pastor here who's always ready to give a good word. Um, we got our friends here to help us under the bridge. So we got it going this morning. Praise God. Somebody said that uh, Jesus came to be like us so that we might become like him. So we don't have a righteousness of our own, but now we have his righteousness, and that should give us joy and encouragement. So let's think about that today. And stand as we read. We'll be reading from uh, the book of John in chapter 20, verses 19 through 23. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so am I sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that we're all here to worship you, Lord, because you are worthy to be worshipped and exalted. Uh, restore to us the joy of our heart, Father. We can attain joy because you have given us your Son and his righteousness. So we thank you for that, Lord. Bless our service. Let it be acceptable unto you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. The children may now go to the uh, children's church. Teddy Bear Picnic song or something. Y'all pray with me now. Okay. Dear Lord, God, as I prepare to bring your message to your people, I ask that you would prepare my heart. Or that you would bless the hours of preparation. God, that you would, like the rain, 
that does not come back empty, Lord, that the words that I speak this morning would not come back empty, but that they would result in changed lives and restored hope. Oh, Lord, I ask that you would move in a powerful way in this room this morning and that we would accept the commission that you have for us. Lord, I ask these things in the strong name of your son, Jesus. Amen. As many of you guys know, I am a, I'm kind of a coffee snob. I'm, I'm a lot of a coffee snob. And I, I'm not a big fan of Folgers coffee. Some of you guys, that's like really bad. Some of y'all like Folgers coffee. That's okay. I'm not here to judge anybody. This is a church. It's not a judgment zone. We can discern that Folgers is terrible, but I'm not going to judge you. Growing up, though, I, I grew up in a time before we had the coffee revolution with the Starbucks, and there was like Maxwell House, and there was Folgers, and that was pretty much it. Maybe if you were like really, really super like interesting, you would get um, a Cafe Du Monde morning call, but you had to go to Louisiana to get it, okay? And, and I remember growing up watching these commercials, and Folgers had some really good commercials. One of my favorite commercials was the one where the guy, and there's some of you guys that are going to have no idea what I'm talking about, and that's okay. That just means that I'm super old, okay? So there was this commercial, and it, would be the, it was this guy, and he was like, you could see him, and he had like a duffel bag on his shoulder, and he was hitchhiking home in his, like, in his, his army uniform, right? And he had it up on his shoulder, and he was like hitchhiking home at Christmas time, and he, he got in like really early in the morning, and then, and he like, he like turned the coffee maker on, and the whole family came in. And I'm going to cry again because this is the best commercial ever, right? Um, the whole family came in, and they were like, Charlie, you're home. And they like loved on him. It was like the best part of waking up is Folgers in your cup, and it's like the family. Well, I loved that commercial growing up, right? I loved it. I was like, and so when I went off, uh, when I, when I went off to, the, to college, I, you know, it's like, it's like I'm going to do that. I'm going to go home, and I'm going to like go into the house and like, and, 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 go to, and get up in the morning and turn the coffee maker on and my family will be there and it'll be the same, it'll be the same experience. Except in Texas, we call that breaking and entering. <laughs> my parents didn't respond the way that I thought they were going to respond to a stranger coming in really, really late at night or early in the morning. It was, a, it was kind of a, really disruptive moment in their, in their week. But I really intended it to be nice. I had returned home in a way that I thought was going to bring us together as a family. And after they got over their initial shock and then anger and then shock again, and the question's like, what were you thinking? Why didn't you just call us? See, in the commercial for Folgers, they didn't have cell phones but by the time I was doing this, we did. So maybe it was like lost in the translation. But the, the way that we return home, the way that we come back home, says a lot about who we are and the things that we want. Right? I wanted this deeply emotional moment of surprise and connection. 
And what we're learning about over the next couple of weeks is the way that Jesus returned to his followers, the way that he came back after this incredibly traumatic moment of his crucifixion. We, last week we looked at the kind of the initial resurrection story, the story of Easter. I'm sorry, two weeks ago we did that. Um, where Jesus appears to Mary Magdalene. And, and we know from, uh, if we kind of piece it together throughout the rest of the Gospels, uh, we kind of get a picture of what happened. Uh, we get an idea that, that Jesus appeared to Mary Magdalene, uh, that he appeared to a, another group of women at some point during the day. Uh, we know from, uh, from other places that he appeared to, to, to the apostle Peter at some point during the day. And then we have a couple other really interesting uh, um, things that happen. One of the things that's, that's pretty cool is uh, there's a group of disciples that are on their way. And we don't get this in John. We see this in Luke. Uh, that in, in, uh, in Luke, we have a, a group of a couple of disciples that are on their way from Jerusalem to a, a place called Emmaus. Okay, which is about a little village about seven miles away from Jerusalem. And so they're kind of on the road. They're walking. They're, they're pretty upset. I mean, Jesus has been crucified. They're not really sure what's going on. And so they're just walking to go to Emmaus. We don't know why they were going. We don't know what the reason was. But we, what we do know is that along the way, at some point, this dude just starts walking with them. And, and it's just kind of like talking to them about things. And, and as people will do on a, on a long kind of trip, they just start talking about the events of the day. And, uh, and they begin to talk about Jesus and what happened to Jesus. And the guy's like, oh, who is Jesus? What is all, you know, what's going on? And they're like, how, how do you not know? Like this was all over town. He was like the Messiah and then they crucified him. And then this guy who's on the road with them begins to describe to them. We're told that he opens their eyes to all of the ways that the scripture pointed to what happened. Now, one of the things that we, we know in the New Testament is that the New Testament interprets the Old Testament. It takes the stories of the Old Testament and it describes how they point to Jesus. Well, this is where we get that from. This wasn't made up. They didn't just like come out, up, uh, up out of whole cloth. This was something that Jesus taught them. And he taught the first group on the road to Emmaus. Well, we're told that as soon as they got to Emmaus, the guy who had been talking to them disappears and they realized that was Jesus. They said, did our hearts not burn when he was with us the entire time? And so these two guys that, that have just had like, like this hours-long conversation with Jesus after a seven-mile walk, they've gotten to Emmaus in the evening, they turn around and they run back to Jerusalem. Because they've had an encounter with the risen Christ, like Peter, like Mary Magdalene, and like the other women that were there. And so our story picks up this morning after these guys have finally made it back to Jerusalem. You figure that's a 14-mile walk. That's a, that's a long walk. Okay, that's a long walk to take. But they're all the way back in Jerusalem. They've met with the disciples. They're in kind of this upper room. We're not really sure exactly where they were, but it would have been like a large guest house where they're all kind of in this room and the doors are closed. And, and there's this heated conversation that's going on. Because throughout this group, lots of different people have had the same kind of weird experience. They met Jesus. They saw a dead man. And some of them have seen him and some of them haven't. And the ones that haven't seen him are like, you people are crazy. And the people that have seen him are, are just, they're, 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 they're trying to figure out what happened. So there is this swirling cloud of 
of chaotic conversation, perhaps even arguments. And into the midst of this this group of desperate, scared, angry, confused, hopeful people, Jesus appears. Yeah, we're not told how he appeared. It wasn't like a wasn't like, you know, a ninja smoke bomb. We throw the smoke by then he's there. Like it wasn't it wasn't like that. It was just he was there. And, and in this very Jesus way, he, he doesn't say, I'm here, or look at me. Or hey guys, I'm back. He doesn't do any of those things. He says, he says, peace to you. And can you just imagine, I just want you to imagine for a moment what that must have been like for them. This isn't like a, the, the, the image of a dead person that you see kind of out of the corner of your eye after the person died where you think that you see them everywhere you go. This isn't, a, this isn't like a, a, a hallucination. This is everybody in the same room at the same time seeing the same guy. And when he comes, he just says, Peace to you. There's a moment in the Gospel of Matthew where we're told that Jesus was on a boat in the midst of a storm and the disciples are freaking out and he's sleeping in the back. And as the storm gets worse and worse and as the disciples get closer and closer to death, at some point they shake Jesus awake and they're all screaming and the storm is screaming and Jesus stands up and says, be still. And just like that, Everything is calm. You see, that's what Jesus does. Jesus brings peace. Jesus is the Prince of Peace. And the peace that he brings so often is the peace that passes all understanding. He tells them to be at peace, but there is absolutely no reason for the people in that room to be at peace. They are the hunted minority. They have seen their leader killed. And now, they're seeing dead people walk. But see, Christ has returned to bring peace to his broken disciples. This is the first thing that he does. See, Jesus is the Prince of Peace, and he brings peace in the midst of brokenness. He's many things, right? Jesus is the prophet. He's priest. He is king. But at the moment that we see him here, he's Prince of Peace. The peace of God is a powerful thing. It is an incredibly alien thing to many of us. See, the peace of God is not the world's idea of peace. We live in a world that sees peace as surrender. We live in a world where people are beset on all sides by conflict, by anger, by brokenness inside, and our world teaches us That the key to being at peace with ourselves is surrender, right? Surrender to 
what you want. See, see the world that we live in teaches us that, that you are at war with yourself because you're a fundamentally good person and society has placed an unreasonable expectation on you. Okay? That, that if you were just left alone to be the beautiful flower that you are, the amazing shiny diamond, that you'd be okay. But it's only when we take society's rules and expectations and lay them on top of you, that's when you begin to be at war with yourself. So how do we come to peace? Just, just surrender. Follow your instincts. Follow your heart. Trust the little voice inside of you. Follow it. And you will be at peace. This is why for the last 50 years, we have been removing restrictions from people. We have been taking away morality from people in an effort to make people happy. To the place that we are at now, where we are told even the identity of gender is a construct that will control you and destroy your life. It is only by embracing our own authenticity that we can be free. Mike, if you will just live your truth, brother, if you will authentically live your story out, whatever that means, whatever it means, brother, just live your story, man, and you'll be at peace. But here's the reality. It's not true. You are not a bright and shiny diamond. You are not a beautiful flower just waiting to bloom. You're a sinner. You are a broken, broken sinner. We are told that we are created in the image of God, but that image of God is marred and scratched and polluted and twisted to the point where all of the desires of our heart are wrong, right? The heart is not your guide. The heart is an idol factory. It makes things that you can worship, things that will control you and destroy you. See, the, the peace that comes from God is not a peace of surrender to your urges. It's not a peace of surrender to your instincts. It's not the peace of surrender to the world around you. The Bible teaches the exact opposite. Our conflict comes because we desire to be God. We desire to supplant God. We desire to move beyond God. And because we come into that, we come into conflict. And so the way that we come to peace isn't, it isn't through surrender. It's through victory. We come to peace through the victory of Christ over our lives. Peace only comes, brothers and sisters, when we surrender to God, when we place him on the throne of our life, when we submit to his will over our will. And so Jesus comes into this midst and he says, peace. But it, it's, not a, it's not a loser's peace. It's not a give up peace. It's a peace because I've won. He comes into the room as a conquering hero. 
and says, be at peace because we have victory. And I wish I could tell you that everybody in the room was like, yes! And it was like the end of Rocky, where it's like, yeah, and they put him up on their shoulders and they carry him around. But they don't. There's, at this point, they're still really confused about what's going on. And so Jesus begins to lay out the, the verification of who he is. He said that when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side, which is kind of a creepy thing to do. Those of you who have children know how much they love to show you their wounds. Daddy, daddy, look at my ouchie. Look at my scrape. Here, let me take this Band-Aid off. No, no, just leave that Band-Aid on there. Some of y'all do the same thing. Hey, let me show you. No, I don't want to see it. In case anybody ever here wonders if I want to see what's underneath your bandage, I don't. Just across the board. I'm not that kind of guy. But Jesus comes into the room and we're told in a little bit more detail in Luke 24, it says that they were talking about these things and Jesus himself stood up among them and said to them, peace to you. But they were startled and they were frightened and they were troubled. And they thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, why are you troubled and why do you doubt? See my hands and my feet. It is I myself. Touch me and see for a spirit does not have flesh and bones See, he wants them to see that he is actually Jesus. They're not seeing him from a distance. They're not catching him in the corner of their eye. He is actually there. He is actually risen. And then he does something that is both normal and amazing. When he said this, he showed them his hands and his feet, and while they were still disbelieved, while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, have you anything to eat? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish and he took it and ate it before them. There, there's this scene in the, in the classic children's book, Harry Potter, where they have like this party and they go and there's ghosts there and the ghosts can't eat anything and so all of the food is corrupted so that they can kind of like smell it or taste it. That, that's not what's happening here. Jesus isn't a ghost. He's not a spirit. He's not ephemeral. He's flesh and blood and he sits down and does what you do when you come back from a long journey. You sit down with people and you eat together. You break bread together. And so he breaks bread with them. See, Jesus has returned and he wants them to understand that he is real. But he also needs them to understand that his reality does not mean that he is the same. See, when Lazarus came out of the grave, he was the same as when he went in. He was just healed. That's why he had the bedclothes wrapped around him and he kind of had to stumble out and they had to unwrap him. Jesus is different. Jesus has been changed. And he's going to do different things now. They're going to have a hard time recognizing parts of him. His wounds have not disappeared, but they've been healed. See, he hasn't come back in exactly the same way. Jesus has a new body, a resurrected body, a changed body, a perfected body. And he comes back and shows them this to demonstrate to them that this is what we will all have. 
Brothers and sisters, I need you to understand this. So often when we think of the resurrection and the afterlife, what we think of is a disembodied existence in like a diaper on a cloud. Like that's, that's kind of the image that we get. It's like a gold diaper with a harp and you're on a cloud and you have wings. That's not what the afterlife is. See, we are promised that as Christ was raised, so we will be raised. That we will receive a new body and we will receive a new life and we will live out our lives eternally. See, God didn't come back. He didn't send his son to return so he could take his disciples out of the world because the world was bad. What he did was he came back so he could begin the process of fixing the world. See, Jesus did not return so that he could destroy the world and, and, and get rid of it. He came back to perfect it. Because, because the world that God made was good. It had just been polluted. The future of mankind is not to escape from the world. It is the renewal of the world and eternal life in a resurrected body. This is fundamentally different from the majority of world religions that teach us that the world is a place to be escaped from. That physical matter is somehow evil. No. The world was created by God and it was created good. And so Jesus is giving them an image, a promise of what is to come. But not yet. See, Jesus has returned to his disciples, and his disciples by this time are thinking that he's going to take them back with him, like he said he would. That it's all over now. That, that they can go home. That the fight is done. But what they don't realize is that their job has just begun. See, he's come back to them to give them a promise of what they're going to have and to give them his peace, but he's doing these things to commission them because they have a mission ahead of them. In verse 21, we read, Then Jesus said to them, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. And if you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. See, Jesus has come to bring them peace in the midst of their sorrow and to remind them that his death and his resurrection are not a time of sorrow, but a time of joy and renewed purpose. And then he tells them what that mission will be. See, he said... It says, as the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. So let's look back at how the Father sent Jesus. Jesus lived eternally with God in perfection. He had everything that he needed, 
And yet God sent him out of that place where he was honored and magnified and glorified. He took him out of that mountaintop, off of that place of beauty and truth, and sent him down into a broken and tortured world for a mission and a purpose. And so now Jesus is talking to the disciples, disciples who have been admitted into the kingdom of God, disciples who now have a place at the table with God in the great heavenly banquet. He says, As I was sent, I'm sending you. You don't get to stay with me. You you have to go outside. You have to leave this room. You have to go out into that dark place filled with people that do not like you. Because you have a mission. What was that mission? Luke tells us that the mission is for them to be his witnesses, to be witnesses of what they've seen in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. That's their mission. He said, you have to go out of this place and tell people what you've seen here. In Matthew, it says that their job is to make disciples. They're supposed to leave that room and they're supposed to go find other people and teach them everything that Christ commanded. They're to baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And he promises that he'll be with them forever to the end of the age. The job isn't over yet. The mission isn't over. It's just begun. They they probably at this point thought that the last three years had been the hardest part. Traveling around with Jesus, sleeping on the ground, kind of sitting back and watching as Jesus did everything. And now, after the horrific crucifixion, now they're done. I, I... I had a moment in my life when I, was, when I was a young man. I think every young man kind of goes through this. I, I decided when I was about 15 years old that, that I wanted to get a man job. I'd been playing football and lifting weights, and I was pretty fit. I was like, you know what? I want a man job. I don't want to babysit. I don't want to clean houses or do like the chores that I, you know, might get paid for from my, from family members. No, I want to, I want to go out. I want to work. I want, I want to go, I want to go bale hay. Anybody here ever baled hay before? Come on. My parents were like, okay, we want you to go to college. So we're going to let you get all the man job you want. So I went, and we had a, a friend that owned kind of this, it was like a pecan orchard, so they had like horses on it, and they had all kind of stuff to do all the time. So I went out there, and man, I was, I had my, had my, had my t-shirt on, and my jeans, boots, I was ready to go, so I'm ready to get down to work, and I, I go out there, and I'm with these, these old kind of field hand guys, and they're just like in, like a button-up flannel shirt, button to their wrists, I'm like, okay, are you, like, are you going to be okay, old man? I don't want you to die. Like, am I here to give you, like, CPR when you have a heart attack? And they all just kind of looked at me like, okay, buddy. And so we go out in the field, and we start picking up. And so the way you bale hay, for those of you who don't know, is you have a truck, and it drives, and you pick the hay up, and you throw it up on the truck, right? 
40-pound bale of hay. Yeah, man, I could do that. I could do that once. Do that twice. Over and over and over again until we get to the end of the row. And I was like, oh, that, was, that was pretty tough, but I, but I made it. They're like, it's 8 o'clock in the morning, buddy. We got to do the whole field. See, I thought my job was done, but my job had just started. And it went like that with every task that we did, baling hay, digging post holes. Anybody ever dug post holes? That's, that's a horrible way to do things. Like, that's, that's a horrible thing to do over and over again. And, there's a, and, you know, when you build a fence, there's a lot of fence posts that have to go in. See, they didn't realize that their job hadn't even started yet. Their job had not even started. What they are being asked to do is almost impossible. And so Jesus begins by equipping them for service. First thing that he's going to do is he's going to empower them with the Spirit. It's like, I know what I'm asking you to do is impossible, but remember how I promised that there would, another would come along? And so he breathes out on them. Now, we need to understand what's going on here. We know that later on in the book of Acts, the Spirit is going to descend on them. What he is doing is he is prophetically describing what's going to happen. He says, you're going to receive the Holy Spirit from me. You're going to be equipped for this ministry that you're about to do. Forty days later at Pentecost, it's going to happen. They're going to be fasting and praying and tongues of fire are going to fall on them. They're going to begin to prophesy and speak in tongues. And they're going to, this is where the church is going to be begun. It's going to be ignited at this place and it's going to just spread throughout the world. So the first thing that he does is the, he equips them with the Holy Spirit. The second thing that he does is that he equips them with authority. And so we have a really interesting passage at the, at the end where he says, and you retain will be whoever you forgive, you forgive. Nope. What on earth does that mean? People have interpreted this differently throughout the centuries, for a long time, the Catholic Church interpreted this as the disciples were allowed to forgive sins, okay? That you would go to the priest and said, hey, I've done this bad thing, and the priest says, you're forgiven. Te absolvo, you're forgiven. Except that's not actually what it's saying here. See, nowhere in Scripture do we see human beings ever in the place where they can forgive sins. There's only one person in the Bible that forgives sins, and that's Jesus. And he gets to do that because he's God. So if that's not what's happening, what is Jesus saying? When Jesus says, those whose sins you forgive are forgiven, what it actually says is those whose sins you forgive will have been forgiven. It's this really strange tense in Greek. 
that describes something that has already happened. And so the idea here is that the disciples are not determining whether or not to forgive somebody. They are declaring that which has already happened. The disciples are being given the charge to speak prophetically about what has happened in heaven from God. And we see this happen a couple of times before this. Back in, back in Matthew 16, Peter declares that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And, and Jesus says, "You uh, blessed are you among men, Peter. You will be Peter the rock. And on the rock of your testimony, I will build my church. And then later on, he begins to describe about church discipline, how, how they're supposed to remove a brother. And in 1 Corinthians, it talks about the same thing. And what's happening here is the church is coming together. The church in its assembly has the authority to discern the forgiveness of God. To declare to people, when somebody comes into my office and we begin to talk about the plan of salvation and, and a person repents of their sins and... I. I have the authority to declare to them, brother, if you have repented of your sins, they're forgiven. These things that control you and hold you, these things that, that have ruled your life, they're gone. As far as the east is from the west, so your sins have been cast away. But not just me. Each of you has the ability to do that, to declare that if a person has repented and accepted Christ, that their sins are gone. But there's a, there's a flip side to that. We also know that if a person does not repent, and if a person does not know Christ, then their sins are not forgiven. And this is the hard task of being a Christian as we go to people this is that, that horrible relationship-ending question that people ask you when you try to share their faith with them. And they say, well, the conversation always gets to this place. Well, do, are you saying that I'm going to go to hell? Yeah, <laughs> I really kind of am. I'm not saying I want you to go to hell. I'm not telling you to go to hell. But I'm saying that if you die outside of a relationship with Christ, you will go to hell. And so if somebody comes to you and they begin to talk about how guilty they feel and how their life is a wreck, and you have a duty to explain to them that the reason that they are conflicted, the reason that they are broken right now is because their sins are not forgiven. But that their sins can be forgiven. See, the church has the authority to proclaim on earth that which has already happened in heaven. Jesus has commissioned them for a spirit-filled prophetic ministry in his name. Christ's return wasn't the end of his ministry then, guys. It was the beginning of a much larger movement to take the truth of his life and his death and his resurrection to the ends of the earth. He's come to bring them peace 
in a mission. And his mission will not result in a happy life for these guys. It's going to result in greater and greater conflict for them with the world. He's returned to equip them with a new and glorious chapter in the kingdom of God. He's commissioning them to be ambassadors to a broken world. And each of these men is going to have to pour out their lives, everything that they have for this. And I need you to understand this. That Christ has equipped and commissioned each of you to be the same kind of emissaries to a broken world. Each of you has been called by God to be his witness here in our Jerusalem or maybe someplace else in our country or maybe someplace else in the world, but every single one of you has been called to do that. And it's a hard mission, especially in the world that we live in. But it's the one that we've been given. But here's the good news. Just like the disciples were empowered with the Holy Spirit, you have been empowered with the Holy Spirit. Right? This is the Spirit of God that is living and active in you and working and helping you. And I'm, I'm going to tell you guys, the Holy Spirit is super annoying really is. The, the Holy Spirit is going to put you in places and at times that you don't want to be. We had a, Jen and I had an experience with this this week. I, I wish I could tell you that I'm the best at being a witness, right? Like I should be the best because I'm the pastor here, but I'm not great, okay? I fall short over and over and over again. We're on our way back from a church conference. We went to a church conference, right? Spent a week studying the word, being preached the word. It was great. We were like on a mountaintop and we got on a plane and I was tired. I wanted to go home. So we're sitting on the plane and I'm sitting on the plane and uh, this guy next to us, about two, uh, the, about right by the window, begins to talk to me and he's just talking to me. And he's like sharing his life with me. He's telling me about his grandkids. He's telling me about the struggles in his family. It's like layups, right? Like, like I'm getting opportunity after opportunity to like connect with him and like share with him and talk to him about the gospel. I'm like, uh-huh, really? That's terrible. And I straight up whiffed it. Didn't take it at all. Didn't have it, and, they, and we, find, we got off the plane, and as we're walking off the plane, I felt horrible because I had not been obedient to God. I had straight up just dropped the ball. It's like in that football game, you know, like it's your one chance to be like Rudy where they like give him the ball, and he like and he just fumbles it and ran, or runs the opposite direction. So then we get another opportunity. We get into our Uber. Get in the Uber, we start driving home. And the Uber driver, same thing, starts telling me all about his life, all about like his kids and his wife losing her job and just all these opportunities. And I'm doing the exact same thing. I'm just like, oh man, I don't know. Until finally, the Holy Spirit gets so tired of me not listening to him. The guy says, you know what, brother, I would just really appreciate it if you would just pray for me. Like, what Uber driver does that? 
What if a driver's like, hey, man, would you pray for me? And I'm like, okay. It's like, it's like God was like, you are so stupid that what I'm going to do is I'm going to give you the ball, and then I'm going to pick you up and throw you over into the end zone. And then he slow clapped me. Brothers and sisters, we have been called to be on mission for Christ. We have been called to have awkward conversations with people, to interrupt our solitude. So I want to give you a a technique, something that you might be able to use as you go out on mission. First thing that we need to be doing is we need to be praying the Lord include me prayer. Wherever you are. Guys, I want to encourage you as you leave this place today, whatever you're doing, you're at your kid's soccer game, you're waiting in line at Walmart, God forbid you're sitting on a plane next to a guy who will not shut up about his family, you pray, Lord, wherever I am, whatever I'm doing, include me in what you're doing here. And then be obedient. I know it's awkward. So here's a technique. It's the acronym LOVE. I tried to explain this to one of the Sunday school classes a couple weeks ago, and I totally messed it up. But I've done some studies since then. Love. Listen. So you sit down next to the guy on the plane, and he wants to talk to you all about his family. Listen to him. Take your earbuds out. Put them in your pocket, in the case, otherwise you lose them. And listen. Listen for the pain that he has. Listen for the crisis that he has. Listen. Next thing, oh, offer to pray. Offer to pray for that person. Whatever the crisis is in their life, offer to pray for them. And then, V, visualize the gospel. There are several different techniques for sharing the gospel that you can do on the back of a napkin. You can follow any of them online. You draw a circle. You can draw the four chairs. There's all kind of stuff. Figure out a way to visualize the gospel and draw it out. Finally, engage the person to go deeper. Every gospel presentation has an invitation at the end of it. Some of you in this room today don't know Christ. Some of you in this room today have never made a decision to follow him. And so every time that I preach a sermon here, I end my sermon with an invitation to you to be able to respond to the call of God on your life. And so when you present the gospel with somebody, you should have an invitation at the end of it. You should, there should be a time when you ask them if they want to have a relationship with Christ. So I want to encourage you this morning, guys. Give yourself to the commission that God has given to you. Maybe you have no idea what I'm talking about here this morning. That you find yourself in a place with no peace. And that first part that we talked about, God sending his son to people that were immersed in crisis. Maybe that resonates with you because you are in the midst of crisis. I want you to know this morning that there is peace for you. 
But that peace only comes through the victory of Christ. See, Christ came and he died, but he died to take your sins away. And if you will repent, if you will turn from the life that you've been living, if you'll accept him as the Lord of your life and your Savior, you can belong to him. In a moment, we're going to have a time of response. We're going to sing a song. And as we sing that song, I want to encourage everyone here to examine themselves. Maybe you've never accepted Christ. You don't know how. I'd encourage you to come down front so that we can pray with you and we can share the gospel with you and help you to understand what that looks like. It may be that you've accepted the gospel, that you've accepted Christ, but you've never made a decision to follow him through baptism. Brothers and sisters, every single person here, if you have accepted Jesus Christ, the very next thing that you need to do is be baptized. We have a tank back there. It's empty, but we'll fill it up with water. Maybe you've been baptized, but you've been floating around shopping for churches. Brothers and sisters, it is God's plan for his people to be in community with each other. So whether you need to accept Christ or need to be baptized or need to join a church, or maybe you just need to be prayed for. During our time of invitation, I'd encourage you to come up and respond. Will you pray with me now? Dear Lord, God, I ask you to be with the people in this room today. That you would watch over them. That you would help them to grow deeper in their relationship with you. Lord, if there is anyone here who does not know you, God, I ask that you would become real to them today. That you would reveal yourself and show yourself to them. Lord, they'd be like Paul on the road to Damascus. They'd just be hit by lightning and, and open their eyes and see you. If there's any here that need a place to worship or just somebody to pray for them, Lord, I pray that you would draw them forward where they can be healed. Lord, we ask these things in the strong name of your son, Jesus. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to this sermon, part of the teaching ministry at Oak Ridge Baptist Church. If you'd like more information about Oak Ridge, you can go to www.orbcnet.com.